morning came to fragrance, and its hills of silver and its valleys of gold were bathed in the warm sapphire light of Alpha Cygni. Watching the daybreak on the shores of an emerald sea was rhythm. He was a tall young man of noble bearing, with curls of jet-black hair, whose elegant robes of white could not conceal the lithe and muscular form of a well-trained athlete. His face was unlined, for he'd known neither care nor worry in his 25 years of existence. And yet, the woman standing by him could see melancholy in his dark, almond-shaped eyes. It was the look of someone who feared that this beautiful new dawn would be the last he'd ever see. Rhythm turned and addressed his companion. Must you go, Barbara? Barbara smiled weakly. She had to, she told him. And Rhythm turned his head away. It hurts me to think that the next time the sun rises on my planet it will not find you smiling at its brilliance. It hurts me too, Rhythm. But it's time for me and my friends to leave, she said. Is it because our sun is your colour blue, our trees your colour red, and our water like your white? Is it because of these that you must go? Barbara assured him that wasn't the case. She loved his world of fragrance, she told him. She loved it more than he could ever imagine. I cannot believe that. If that was so, then you would remain here on fragrance and share with me the state of love. Barbara smiled. It must be very difficult for you to understand, Rhythm. Believe me, I love the warmth of your sun, the musky smell of your orange plains and the emerald clarity of your green oceans. Your planet is what the old and wise of my world would call utopia. In fact, not even our most imaginative visionaries would have dreamt of a paradise-like fragrance. Then stay, Barbara. Rhythm offered her his hand, but Barbara refused. She tried hard not to let her emotions get the better of her, as she wondered where the Doctor, Ian and Susan might be. The Doctor and Ian were waiting beside the TARDIS, which stood at the edge of a wood some way off from the beach. The trees of the wood were the colour of burnt umber and were crowned with leaves of silver. The doctor tapped impatiently at his watch. Susan and Barbara had agreed to meet them here, he reminded Ian, and they were late. He deplored tardiness, he said, and promised himself to have a word with them when they finally did turn up. Ian smiled. It was hardly surprising, he said. Uh, in the few weeks they'd spent on this planet, they'd made some very good friends. He imagined it was taking Barbara and Susan longer than expected to say their goodbyes. The doctor heard someone call his name and saw an elderly couple approach them. The man, whose name was I Am, was tall and proud, with flecks of grey in his full head of hair. He was carrying a small, transparent cube, which he handled with great care. The woman, like her companion, also bore herself with a regal demeanour. I Am approached the doctor and Ian, and pressed the palm of his hand against each of theirs in turn. May your hearts be blessed, he said, and bowed to them. It is a bad day for us, the woman said sadly, and greeted them in the same manner. For today, 
fragrance is losing its friends from afar. You mustn't think of it in that way, Ryan. We'll always be in each other's thoughts. Yes, our hearts will always preserve each other's memories, I am said. He handed the transparent cube over to the doctor. Suspended inside was a small rod of silvery grey. The doctor raised the cube to the blue light of the sun to examine it. Yes, it was precisely what he required, he told Iam. And beautifully made, he added. Our designers managed to follow your instructions in every detail. It is square as you want it and is made of durable crystal. Within, you can see the filament made from our heavy grey stone, I am told him. Is that the thorium filament valve, Doctor? The Doctor said that it was. Once he'd installed it in the TARDIS, he would have a good chance of getting Ian and Barbara back home to Earth. He thanked Iam and Rhyme once again. There is never any necessity for gratitude between friends such as us, Rhyme told him. There was, however, one way in which the doctor could prove his thanks, I am said. Would he show them his time machine? Would he let them see the TARDIS as he had promised? Ian frowned. The doctor normally considered his ship to be sacrosanct, and he never willingly invited strangers on board. But to Ian's surprise, the doctor just smiled. With great pleasure, my dear sir. Follow me, the doctor said airily, and took out his key to unlock the door. Within a beautiful ornamental garden of giant, multi-hued flowers and cascading fountains of green, Susan sat on a stone bench with two women who were only a few years older than her. Like everyone else Susan had met on this planet, Melody and her younger sister Harmony were tall and beautiful, and there was not a trace of care on their faces. Susan, however, was far from happy. It was time now to say goodbye to her new friends. They say parting is sweet sorrow, but it isn't. There's nothing sweet about it at all. But I promise I'll never forget you, Melody, nor you, Harmony. The heart always remembers, Susan, even if the head forgets. Susan looked around at the beautiful rainbow-coloured garden and then far past the silver-leaved trees and down to the vast emerald sea, glittering in the morning light. She sighed deeply. Oh, I have a feeling that probably one day I shall regret having left your planet. You must never become a slave to regrets, Susan. Melody looked around, and there was a slight look of concern in her dark eyes. Susan, have you seen our brother? Rhythm? No. Actually, I was hoping he'd be here with you. I wanted to say goodbye to him as well. Is he with Barbara? I don't know. Perhaps. Melody, what's the matter? Is something wrong? Nothing at all. Susan wasn't convinced. 
She pressed the two sisters to tell her what was suddenly troubling them so much. How old is your heart, Suzanne? <laughs> what do you mean? Have you yet navigated the thin purple arc that frames your adolescence? I don't understand. Sister, perhaps it is not time for her yet. I think it is. I wish you'd both tell me what you're talking about. Each life, each person, goes through two phases. Like our seasons, Susan. Each phase circumnavigates a brightly coloured arc. The thin purple arc and the fragile yellow arc. Melody looked hard at Susan to make sure she understood. Susan told her to carry on. She was all ears now. The first phase of this life begins when the person's eyes absorb reflections. The life then learns the mysteries until it circumvents the thin purple arc. At this border, it has lived one semisphere and has reached maturity. Do you understand, Susan? I'm with you so far. From childhood to maturity, that's the half span of your life. Is that right? Yes. We live one complete circle, divided into two semispheres. On Earth, there are three. Childhood, maturity, and old age. At the end of this thin purple arc, our life crosses into the second phase and follows the fragile yellow arc. It has then entered the state of love. And in order to circumvent this semisphere, the life must build an ever-extending bridge, one that follows the fragile yellow arc. The life must build this life together with another life, with someone he or she loves. Oh, you mean falling in love. Oh, I know all about that. Well, I mean... Not that it's happened to me, but I know all the same. But if this bridge collapses for any reason, then the fragile yellow arc cannot complete the circle. When that happens, then the life must perforce sail a burning boat into the blazing heart of the sun. For only then will the circle be complete. Only then. Will the life serve its existence? I don't understand. You mean that if you're no longer in love, then you must die? But why? Why can't you fall in love as many times as you want? The state of love is reached only once, Susan. And it is reached together with the other person. If one of the two pillars that hold this bridge of love breaks, then the other must break too. Oh, but that's cruel. If one of the lovers dies, why should the other one die as well? That is the way our hearts are made, Susan. Without the two pillars, the heart feels the compulsion to seek the sun. Well, it's not like that on Earth. That is what I was afraid of. Hey, but that's okay. We still survive, so don't worry. We are not worried about you, Susan. We are worried about our brother. Rhythm? But why? What's wrong with him? We think he has built a bridge of love to Barbara. Are you sure? We are sure. So Barbara must stay here on fragrance. The bridge of love must be kept intact. 
For if Rhythm's Bridge collapses, then he will have to set sail in a burning boat to the sun. But then he'll die. If he's already fallen for Barbara, then Rhythm will die. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor was proudly showing his machine to Iamb and Rhyme, who had only just recovered from the shock of discovering that it was, in fact, bigger on the inside than the outside. The Doctor indicated four separate panels on the central six-sided control console. The instruments on each of the first three panels regulated in turn the ship's speed, the distance it travelled, and its passage through time. I am and Rhyme eagerly took in his every word. The dials, switches and meters on the fourth panel made up the time-space coordinator, the doctor told them grandly. Theoretically, it synchronized the other controls. Why do you say theoretically? asked Rhyme. The doctor winced. She'd hit on a very sore point. Oh, uh, well, uh, one of the coordinator's valves has developed a fault, which is why we haven't been able to get Ian and Barbara back to their own time on Earth. But hopefully your little device will solve our problem, he said, and indicated the thorium cube, which he'd left on an antique Chippendale chaise long in the corner of the control room. Both I am and myself. We'll pray that it does, Rhyme told him solemnly. The doctor pointed out a small device which he called the light speedometer. This regulated the speed at which the TARDIS could travel, he explained. His ship had a cruising speed of 186,000 miles per second, or the speed of light, he said proudly. But its maximum speed was almost six trillion miles per hour. One light year every hour. One mile was equivalent to what on fragrance was called an arabesque, he told Iamb and Rhyme, and they were greatly impressed by this. They watched on fascinated as the doctor showed off the instrument which controlled the distance in space over which the ship could travel. After he'd explained the workings of that device, he then instructed them in the operation of the meter which monitored the TARDIS's passage through time. He measured this in units of chronos, he informed them, and one chronos was equivalent to a thousand Earth years. Finally, he showed them the time-space coordinator, which linked the three separate control units together. Your machine is a work of art, Doctor. You are to be honoured, Rhyme said approvingly, and the Doctor beamed with pride. I am asked if he and his wife could take a closer look at the control console and the other machines and instruments which lined the far wall of the console room. The doctor said he'd be delighted for them to do so. Ian drew the doctor to one side and whispered so that I am and Rhyme couldn't hear him. Why did you go into so many details? Why ever not? 
There's no harm in it, the doctor replied. I thought you didn't want anybody to find out the secrets of the ship in case they built one like it. So why tell them? To start with, I've only explained the basic principles. And secondly, even if they had blueprints, it would be of no use to them, he replied. They wouldn't be able to assemble a similar machine, he told Ian. Fragrance lacked uranium, tungsten, and vanadium. The three elements essential for the proper functioning of the time machine. They have thorium, which they can use as uranium, but they still lack tungsten and vanadium. Besides, the secret's in the assembling. And for that, they would need the ship's blueprints, the doctor said. I hope you're right, Doctor. Somehow I think we've just made ourselves very vulnerable. The Doctor looked at Iam and Rhyme, who were closely inspecting and taking notes of all the controls on the console. They are very peaceful people, Chesterton. Refusing them would have been discourteous, he said. Perhaps you're right. Now, getting back to this coordinator of yours, I might as well know the full story... With a faulty coordinator, anything can happen, right? Yes, it's like a fruit machine in a way. The coordinator makes sure that you get three lemons in the same line. And if I can continue with the comparison, you hit the jackpot, the doctor explained. And without it, using your comparison, it's just potluck. <laughs> so, that's why you failed to get us back to Earth. Well... Let's hope that the thorium filament works. I'd hate to end up as a corpse floating around in space. Rhyme had overheard his words. She and her husband left the console and walked up to Ian with an alarmed expression on their faces. Please, do not say such things, she said. I'm sorry, what did I say? A corpse floating around in space. That is the way we die, said Iam. There was an awkward pause, and Rhyme attempted to change the subject. She indicated the cube on the chaise long. What are the chances of your thorium filament working? She asked the doctor. Ian looked curiously at her. She was showing just a little too much interest in the TARDIS, he thought. The doctor, however, answered her readily. Pretty fair, I think. Ideally, I should have a uranium one, however... Thorium is a highly fissionable element, and with certain adjustments, it should do the trick. Of course, one can't know for sure. Rhyme laid an urgent hand on the doctor's arm and said, Doctor, if there is any doubt, any doubt at all, then perhaps you and your friends should not leave fragrance at all. On the shores of the bright emerald sea, Barbara and Rhythm still faced each other, unsure of what to say. There was a sadness on both their faces as they each realised they were losing something. Barbara, the company of a man she had dared to call friend during her little time on fragrance. And Rhythm, the woman from afar he had come to love. Why must you go, Barbara? Why can't you stay here on fragrance? It was difficult to explain, Barbara told him. You see, 
In a way, you and your people have achieved perfection, Rhythm. You've almost become gods. You no longer fear terror because you've destroyed terror itself. You no longer practice homicide because you've harnessed the clouds and channeled the rains into usefulness. And you've simply destroyed the causes of unnatural death. Is that bad? Of course it isn't, she replied. Then what do you mean? What I'm trying to say is that my planet needs centuries, maybe forever, to become like yours, she told him. She looked out across the Emerald Sea and sighed. Logically, I should hate to go back to my world. And yet I love the Earth. I love its beauty and its ugliness, its golden heart and its insanity. Away from it, I find that I love and miss everything about it. I mean, you should see England. Bright and shining one day, misty, damp and foreboding the next. I can't help it, Rhythm. My world is an inferior one to yours, and yet I still yearn for it. So I must go back. Will you ever return to fragrance, Barbara? Barbara shrugged. Who could tell, she asked. Because if you do, then I can wait for you. I can't ask you to wait, Rhythm. You must find yourself another woman to attain the state of love, she said. In fragrance, we attain the state of love only once. And only with one person. I can't quite believe that, said Barbara with an awkward smile. But Rhythm assured her it was true. Barbara, I can wait for you if you tell me that you will come back, but you must tell me now. Yes or no, and your answer must be final. I'm sorry, Rhythm. The answer must be no. Barbara replied as gently as she could. Thank you. Oh, please try and understand, she began, but Rhythm cut her short. Before I go, may I kiss you, Barbara? Barbara said that he might. May your heart always keep you happy, Barbara. Rhythm extended his arms and crossed them before placing his palms on each of Barbara's cheeks. He kissed first his own right shoulder and then his left, before taking his hands away. That is our kiss of welcome and of farewell. I thank you, Barbara. You have crowned my state of love. And now I must go. And with that, Rhythm turned away and left Barbara alone on the shores of the wide Emerald Sea. In the TARDIS, the Doctor had finished introducing Iamb and Rhyme to all the wonders of the ship. He'd even given them a conducted tour of the mighty engine rooms, something he'd only ever begrudgingly shown Ian before. The Doctor claimed that he was only being polite. Ian knew for a fact that the old man was showing off. The Doctor and Ian made their farewells to Iamb and Rhyme. They would all miss each other, they agreed. May your hearts and the sentinels of the galaxies guide you, Iam said, as he led his wife out through the TARDIS's doors. Thank you. To remembrance, said Rhyme. The doctor looked on thoughtfully as Iam and Rhyme left the TARDIS, walking hand in hand back into the orange and silver woods.
Chesterton, have you noticed that there is not a single unattached man or woman on this planet? He asked. Unattached? What do you mean, Doctor? Above the age of 30, there is not one person who is not the husband or wife of another, the doctor replied. Ian paused for a moment. The doctor was right, he realised. They're all couples, like I am and rhyme. Funny that. Maybe their lives are connected in some way. Or something. <laughs> Lucky them, I say. It wasn't particularly important, said the doctor. Besides, they had other more important things to worry about. For a start, he needed Ian's help in integrating the thorium valve into the TARDIS's circuits. As I Am and Rhyme made their way back home through the woods, they chanced upon Rhythm, who was heading back towards the shores of the sea, where not so long ago he'd taken his leave of Barbara. Their faces fell when they saw him, for his eyes were red from crying, and strapped to his back was a tiny rowing boat, like a coracle. His final journey awaited him, he told his parents, in answer to their unspoken question. It is time for me to sail into the sun. Is it the earth girl, Barbara? Rhyme asked. It is, mother. Then I will make her stay, Rhyme decided. You cannot do that. Rhyme grabbed her son's arm to stop him from leaving. The doctor has shown us the secrets of his machine. We can prevent Barbara from leaving fragrance, she told him. You must not. Barbara must go back to her own planet. Her bridge of love extends to her own world. You cannot change that, Mother. I will not let you sail into the sun. You should have a longer life, Rhyme resolved. Rhythm turned away from his mother. He was resigned to his fate, he said, and nothing she could say or do would change his mind. We cannot ordain these things, I am, told his wife, sadly. Rhyme would hear nothing of it. But we can modify their course. We can destroy their machine. And then Barbara will not be able to leave fragrance, she said. No, Mother. And even if you do succeed, I still sail today towards the heart of the sun. In the TARDIS, the Doctor connected the thorium valve to the time-space coordinator. Everything is now ready, he announced confidently. As soon as Susan and Barbara returned, he would take off. They would all be back in the London of 1963, he made a quick mental calculation, in nine hours, 45 minutes and 18 seconds, he said. Ian gave the Doctor a sceptical look. He'd heard similar promises before. He left the doctor and went outside to see if Barbara and Susan were on their way back yet. Barbara was standing outside the TARDIS. There was a sad look on her face 
as she gazed in the direction of the shore where she'd said goodbye to Rhythm. We're ready to go. The doctor's just making the final adjustments to the controls. You've seen Susan? She was just saying goodbye to Rhythm's sisters, Barbara told him. Ah, right. I said my goodbyes last night. Oh, well, she'll be on her way soon. Uh, Barbara, are you all right? Is there something wrong? She was fine, Barbara replied. You don't sound very convinced. It's Rhythm. He wants me to go back and stay. He, he says that he's fallen in love. With you? Yes, with me, Barbara replied. Oh. And uh, are you in love with him? I like him, Ian. I like him very much, but... But you don't love him and all that jazz. Poor fellow. Barbara smiled sadly and entered the TARDIS. After Barbara had gone, Ian looked impatiently at his watch and wondered where Susan was. He was about to start looking when she came running towards him, followed closely by Melody and Harmony. About time, too. Ian, have you seen Barbara? She's just gone into the ship. We are ready to leave. Oh, no, she's got to stay here. Stay here? What are you talking about, Susan? Melody, Harmony, explain it to him, will you? I'll find her. Susan pushed past Ian into the TARDIS. The doctor looked up from the console, where he was making some final adjustments to the time-space coordinator. <gasps> Grandfather, have you seen Barbara? The doctor told her that Barbara was in her room, getting ready for departure. <gasps> she can't leave. Oh, Grandfather, she can't! Susan rushed out of the control room and into the interior of the ship, calling out Barbara's name. Barbara! Barbara! Outside the TARDIS, Ian was asking Melody and Harmony what was all the fuss about. Just what is going on? We've come to ask Barbara to stay. Stay? Why? She must preserve Rhythm's bridge of love. Bridge of love? But Barbara doesn't love him. She does not? No. I mean, she likes him very much, of course, but love? <laughs> well... That's altogether different, isn't it? If Barbara stays here on fragrance, then she may grow to love him. That's asking a bit too much, isn't it? No, it isn't. Well, I think it is. She does not love him. Can such a thing ever happen? Can there be one-sided love on fragrance? I have never seen that happen. The bridge of love is created by two people who are destined to do so. Well, I'm afraid it does happen. But there's no need to worry. I'm sure Rhythm will find himself another partner. <laughs> Most girls would throw themselves at him. Then all is lost. Oh, don't take it like that, for goodness sake. Barbara must be made to stay here. What? She must be forced to stay here. No, sister. We cannot do that. What are you talking about? Barbara must remain here on fragrance. She cannot be allowed to leave. Ian took a step back. Suddenly aware of danger, he heard a voice call out his name and saw Rhyme and Iam running from out of the woods towards them. Rhyme cried out to her daughters to restrain him and prevent him from entering the TARDIS. He took advantage of the momentary distraction and rushed back into the TARDIS, slamming the door shut behind him. Iam and Rhyme joined their daughters. They started banging on the doors, trying unsuccessfully to break in. Stop! Ian! 
Please, even if Barbara stays, it would not help. All is lost. Ian burst into the TARDIS control room just as Susan was returning from the ship's interior. She was with Barbara, who was puzzled at Susan's insistence she should go outside and talk to Rhythm. The doctor was adjusting the controls on the console and looked up quizzically as Ian entered. Doctor, take off. We have to leave. Now. The doctor frowned. Whatever was Chesterton talking about, he wanted to know. Ian pointed up at the scanner, which showed Iam, Rhyme, and their two daughters gathered around the TARDIS. They want to keep Barbara a prisoner! Barbara looked at the image on the screen. Where was Rhythm, she wondered. Why wasn't he there with the rest of his family? Ian was wrong, she said. Whatever reason would they have for wanting to hold her prisoner on fragrance, she asked. It's all true. If you leave Fragrance, then Rhythm will die. Look at Melody and Harmony. They came with me to ask you to stay. On the screen, Barbara saw Iam and his family turn sadly away from the TARDIS. They began to walk off, not back into the woods, but down to the shores of the Emerald Sea. Barbara, hurry! If you're quick, you can still catch them. Barbara continued watching them depart. She seemed uncertain as to what to do. Finally, she made her decision. Please, open the doors, Doctor, she asked. Very well, Miss Wright, the Doctor said, and purposefully flicked one particular control on the console. Barbara looked at the screen. It was now showing an image of the planet Fragrance, rapidly fading away into the blackness of space. There was no going back. She knew that. But there was one last thing she could do. She reached over and adjusted the dial to focus the scanner. The on-screen image changed to one of the shore of the great emerald sea of Fragrance. Watched by his family, Rhythm climbed into his small coracle and started to sail off. The ocean's current swept him further and further away until he was no more than a speck on the horizon. And then a warm yellow light enveloped him and his boat. Together they slowly rose from the emerald waters and for a brief moment hung suspended in mid-air. And in that all too brief moment, and though she knew it was impossible, Barbara could have sworn she saw Rhythm turn and look at her and mouth three silent words. Barbara wiped the tears away from her eyes. May your heart always keep you happy, Rhythm, she whispered and turned and buried her face on Ian's shoulder. And then the boat erupted into a magnificent ball of flame and headed like a comet towards the fiery heart of the sapphire sun. And night fell on fragrance.
I'm uh, David Richardson. I'm the producer of The Lost Stories. I'm here on a Tuesday in January and we're on the second day of recording Farewell Great Macedon. And with me I've got John Dorney, who's playing Alexander. Hello. And Nigel Robinson, who adapted uh, Maurice Farry's script for audio. Hello. And Lisa Bauman, who's the director. Hello. Hello. I'm going to start with Nigel, um, because uh, you, you were the, the first port of call on this. Um, my reason for hiring you, actually, originally was because um, you'd adapted a couple of the Hartnell stories for the Twelve right, Books yeah. range, hadn't you? That's right. I'm very, very old. I remember Hartnell. He was my doctor. Was he, really? And um, Ian, Barbara and Susan were my first companions as well. And... Um, Ian and Susan appear in this, played by William Russell and Carolyn Ford. You uh, specifically adapted The Edge of Destruction and The Sensor. That's right, didn't yeah. You? Um, so, how did the job of adapting this for audio compare to doing a TV script to book? Very, very different indeed. Obviously, we got two of the original actors reprising their parts, so that was quite easy. What is more difficult is providing the linking material between the spoken words of William and Carol Ann and dividing the speaking duties between the two of them to keep a nice flow going, a nice contrast as well. I've given Carol Ann and William each quite a lengthy speech, for which they probably won't... um, appreciate <laughs> uh, but I've, tr- I've tried to keep it bouncy and keep the difference between the characters I've also assigned different characters to each of the voices so for instance most scenes in which a Feistian appears are voiced by Carol Ann and all of Antipater's scenes are voiced by William to keep some consistency across the board of characters ah. What did you think of the script when it originally landed in your lap? I loved it, I loved it. I don't see why they did not do it, and I wish more TV could be like this. It's exciting, it's very well structured and very articulate. Uh, I loved it at first sight. When I agreed to produce it, The Big Finish, I did some background research into Alexander the Great, I read the campaigns of Alexander, and I found to my astonishment, that every single thing which happens in Foel Great Macedon has a bearing in truth. For instance, a poisoned red rose was actually something which happened. Calanus insisting that Alexander burn him on the pyre is something which did happen. Everything happened in, in history as it did in Foel Great Macedon, which is great proof of Morris Fahey's uh, talent as a writer and it's a great mm. shame that such an educational show was never shown on Doctor Who. Mm. I agree actually, I, I'm, it, it, I'm very sad that actually it wasn't made for television because I just think it's such a good story. I, I wonder if you could bring John and Lisa in here and just mm. get your thoughts mm. on it please. I mean first of all when, when I received the script I mean it's <clears throat> been another, another uh, lost story where we've had to use a sort of narrative uh, pattern for it, I think it was um, Prison and base that's that's right yes and um i always think when it when it's such a big story there's always the danger of you know this is going to sound a very dry piece uh when it comes to you know narrative then dialogue narrative then but actually and nigel picked up on it the fact is it's a really strong story and it is a real page turner and you do know you, you do want to know what happens next and all the um 
all the characters. Although we've had a bit of a debate about the pronunciation, so Nigel, <laughs> I've got to pick you up on that. It was Kalanis, not Kalanis. <laughs> so, but no, it's um, all of those characters are very, very clearly uh, delineated. Um, Nigel did us a very uh, clever little graft to, to tell us what everybody sounded like. So um, uh, I shall uh, ask. There'll be a competition to see which one they think is Brian Blessed. Which I thought <laughs> <was good. laughs> but no, it was, it's just a really strong story. I think it works extremely well. Yeah. And John, you knew a bit of the background of it as well, didn't you, of this story before coming in? Yeah, I sort of um, looked up the details of uh, of how it was made and all these sort of uh, the detail of, of that. And um, I very much admire Morris as a writer. He, he's got a sort of um, incredibly proactive approach. There was the um, the lovely story that he was basically invited in for a a, a, a meeting with I think it was David Whittaker and. It, it was like three days away, and in that three days, he wrote a forty-minute sort of triad episode, which is the fragile yellow arc of fragrance, as something mm. to show. And then, uh, when he got the idea for Farewell, Great Master, and he wrote the entire thing rather than just the one episode he'd been asked to do, because he, he felt that it was a, t- a big enough idea to sort of to deal with. And and you can see that very much in the script. The, the, that it's very different from the sort of the sixties Doctor Who in a way, because it's. It, it clearly works as a piece of art in its own right because it's got a, a genuine intent and purpose and theme and, and it, it's exploring ideas and desperately wanting to say something that is still relevant today. And that's um, yeah, it's, a, it's a remarkable achievement. Mm. And uh, tell us how you got the role in this because there's a story, isn't there? It, yeah, I um, I was it was it was due to um, me uh, writing another one. Um, I wrote the uh, story that's now called Echoes of Grey. And I asked if I could play the monsters in it, which I have done. If, if anyone hasn't heard it, it's completely spoiled it because I'm I'm not credited. Hopefully, <laughs> um, it hasn't come out yet, so I don't know. But um, I, I asked if I could play the monsters mainly because I quite liked the idea of having a slightly uh, having a male voice turn up in what appeared to be an all female play, and that it would be a bit of a surprise. And also because I thought I could do the monsters, and <laughs> I thought it would be fun. And and so I, I stood in the booth and did my, my first Yes, I just have lines. to interrupt yep. you there because you did the, the, the first line, which was, I love you. And love d- you. D- d- David and I kind of went, oh. I think Lisa Alexander. went, Alexander. Yeah. I think Lisa went, oh, I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think that was Wendy. Uh, that, that was, was Wendy, Wendy. Wendy was I was Wendy, wasn't it? Really swooned for <laughs> Wendy and went, oh, I say. Yeah. Um, but, that but goes no, down well with the dog. I think she now, said, oh, I say, and we looked at each other and you said, Alexander. And I went, Ah, <laughs> it was just one word. Yeah. We, we actually gave you a spontaneous audition. Didn't so we you? had to yeah. do a script, didn't we? Yeah, yeah I was handed a script and I did the audition. I would like, I'd, I'd like to point out, just for the sake of argument, that, that you know that I am sort of and that I have been acting for a reasonable amount of time. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, yes. it's just if anyone's listening to this, thinking, what they just got in some writer to do? <laughs> yes, we should point out that you are an actor yes, uh, and yeah, a writer. Yeah, formed at exactly. the National Theatre and I yes. love it. made leads on tour, and you know it's, it's all those kind of things. So it's it's um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We we didn't just drag up any old. Well, I think yes. your performance well, yeah, in that stands yeah. <laughs> in, in many ways you did, but at the same time. <laughs> and has there been sort of some sort of buzz about being in one of the lost stories for you? Um, it's it's well, it's especially with this one, obviously. I mean, uh, because you, you're working with the first, the, the two actors from the, the two surviving actors from the first uh, cast of the show. That's quite a privilege. In many ways, I think it's quite good that that is me, who's somebody who actually is aware that that's a privilege. Because you could quite easily have gotten an actor who would just be treating this as another job and wouldn't be kind of ever so slightly excited going, 
I, I know who these people are <laughs> and why this is quite quite um yeah it's it's, it's very much I mean especially else that it's such a lovely script but um yeah I, I and, and such a lovely character to play you don't get to play Alexander the Great that often I'm far too short to play him <laughs> and, and and yeah I I've I've had loads of friends who've been kind of when I've told them been able to explain what what they're about they're kind of going that's amazing everything about it they just sort of get excited about. So yes, very much a buzz about it, I think. And you are blonde. I, mean, I am blonde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blonde-ish. There you go. Off blonde ginger. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. It's an English version, it's all right. Um, let's turn to Lisa. I mean, what's, what's it been like to direct? I mean, in comparison to a companion chronicle as well. Well, I mean, it, it kind of falls between so many stools because it's sort of a companion chronicle, but it isn't. It's a sort of a full cast story, but it isn't. Mm. And it's it's trying to find a happy balance between the storytelling element of any audio anyway but as i touched on earlier to be honest the story the actual plot and the and the structure of it is so strong that i'm i'm, I'm less daunted than i was and actually let's be honest we're very lucky with the cast mm. um and the wonderful mellifluous uh, william russell and the, and the uh, wonder i mean again I'd, uh, my first companion chronicle was with carol um, it on, was, uh, wasn't it? It, it was, was the first yeah, one I ever directed was here, There'd Be Monsters. Yeah. So I knew that Carol's vocal skills were pretty impressive as well. Yeah. And, of course, John, having heard his monster, you know, mm. we thought he, he's the man for Alexander. So uh, it, it's like any audio, you know, 95% of it's in the casting and then you sort of head them off in the right direction. Again, um, Nigel's adaptation is very good because... Um, You've got to look at the valleys and the peaks when you come to structuring any drama. And with something that is six episodes, I mean, that's a, that's a big old drama. Mm. And to try to keep the, the pace injected at the right points but know when to take the foot off the pedal at the same time, it has to be within the script. Mm. And it is. Yeah. And I think that's why it works. That well, Certainly from at this point, and obviously, you know, you put all the bells and whistles on afterwards with the post-production, mm. and that just embellishes it even more. But it has to be there in the first place. So mm. you, you, can't, you can't cover too many cracks with special effects. Mm. And um, so, I've yes, I've enjoyed it, mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. And, it, of course, it, it wings along quite quickly, which is also um, yeah. shows that it's, it, it works. <laughs> and I think the post-production on this is going to be quite interesting So we're going to try and keep it in the style of that very early 60s. Oh, yes. Doctor Who, aren't we? I know Toby, who's doing the post-production, was just looking at the, some of the, the music Aztecs. from the Aztecs. Yeah, yeah that yeah, was and really... And we hadn't realised it was actually composed by Richard Rodney Bennett, who's incredibly well-known now. I know. Early on in his career. And you, you can hear little things that you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. very interesting. So it's, it's going to be interesting making an audio Doctor Who in black and white. Yes. <laughs> well, we did, we did it with Here There Be Monsters, so we know it's yes. possible. Yes, we did. I mean, there's obviously the, the, the difference here is that it's, that it's an historical and not a, you know, straightforward, you know, s- space and monsters and things like that. So uh, radiophonics probably... I don't know when the radiophonics was in existence at, at that early point, It was, was it? the very beginnings of the radiophonic yeah. workshop. They just got so, the TARDIS dematerialisation by running a uh, key up and down oh, really? a, a piano chord, yeah. <laughs> So where it all started, that. but also, I mean, but in, in in terms of historic stuff, that you can you can ref, reference much more early music and and make it a little bit more accurate, but with a twist, mm. with a sixties twist. So no no pressure then, then Toby. Mm. Thank no you. pressure. <laughs> well, um, that's all we've got time for today on the Tuesday, because we're going to go back and record part four now. Aren't we, we most certainly are. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you.
Hello, it's David again. This is uh, Wednesday the 27th of January. We're now on day three of Farewell Great Macedon. Um, we're halfway through episode five and whilst everybody's on a lunch break, I'm actually in the sound booth with Richard Bignall. Hello, Richard. Hello, David. Uh, if you don't know Richard, Richard um, is a writer for Doctor Who magazine. He also produces um, supplementary extra features for the Doctor Who DVDs. And he's also very interested in Doctor Who uh, Lost Stories. And he's actually been um, a really helpful contributor to, to our series of Lost Stories because he's pointed me in the direction of scripts and sent me copies that he had. I, don't, I just wanted, starting off, Richard, I mean, what has been your fascination for collecting all this information on missing Doctor Who stories? I think it uh, really comes down to that you get to a chance to see the way that Doctor Who might have gone mm. had they chosen some stories other than the ones that they actually made. Um, of course, with a programme like Doctor Who, uh, you have a central canon, which is your televised stories, um, and everyone accepts that as being your central core. But to just go off and see exactly where you might have gone had they chosen this particular script rather than making that one, it can be can be quite fascinating. So it's uh, it's quite an interesting avenue to actually go down and see whether or not those scripts and storylines actually still exist. Mm. What would you say has been your most pleasurable find? Uh, probably this one is fairly memorable, Farewell Great Macedon. Um, it was back in 1999 uh, that I was made aware that... Uh, a chap by the name of Stephen Ricks, who produced various fan uh, videos about the prisoner, uh, had actually got a script that Morris Farhee had done that he had written for the prisoner but had never been made because Patrick McGowan didn't like various things that he had uh, the hero doing. So I was aware that Morris had contributed something in the very, very early stages of the programme. So I wrote to Morris and said, well, look, if your script for The Prisoner from 1966-67 still exists, is there any chance that what you wrote for Doctor Who might still exist from a few years earlier? And by return of post, I got this big fat envelope through <laughs> with photocopies of the entire six scripts of Farewell Great Macedon. And uh, Morris pretty much said, do with them what you like. Now, I'll be more than, more than happy for you to do whatever you like, write about them however you want, uh, because you know it was a, a really interesting period of my life, and I'm just very, very glad that someone's taken an interest in them. Right. And did, did Morris sort of explain to you the circumstances of why this never got made in the 60s? He did indeed. It was it, Morris was a an actor at that particular time, and he went on to uh, act in a couple of James Bonds and in things like um, Murder on the Orient Express and so on, all sort of fairly small parts. But he was supplementing that with writing at the same time. And uh, one of the people that he turned to was David Whittaker, and he made this suggestion about uh, going in to see David Whittaker with the idea of writing a script. And David Whittaker said, yes, fine, come in and we'll have a meeting. And on the basis of that, in the week from when the appointment was made to when he actually turned up in Whittaker's office, he'd written The Fragile Yellow Arca Fragrance as a tester. Right. So he presented that to, to David and uh, they chatted about ideas that they, they could have gone down. And then he went away and wrote Farewell Great Macedon. He was only supposed to actually sort of do it as a as a trial thing and uh, maybe just sort of write a storyline or one script. But Morris, Morris said that he got so into it, he just ploughed through the entire six scripts and presented it as a finished article. Um, 
at the time, it was something they decided not to do because they were uh, having reservations, apparently, about the possibility that um, people or youngsters were getting confused about real historical characters and what they were doing and how they were being portrayed in Doctor Who. Mm. But interestingly, the script then got resubmitted a few years later to Jerry Davis right. um, as a possible, uh, but he turned it down. It then got resubmitted to the BBC for conversion into a classic series about Alexander the Great, and they turned it down. So it then went into Morris's drawer and then stayed there for several years. It's extraordinary, really, because the, a common theme of the conversations we've been having in the green room this week is... Um, just the surprise that it wasn't ever made because it is such a perfectly formed script. It's a very intelligent script and it, it's very dramatic as well. I mean, there's some super sequences in there. Um, is, is it when he arrived with you? I mean, were you sort of surprised by how finished it was, how polished it was? I think the lovely thing about Farewell Great Macedon is as you read the script, you can hear the voices of everyone in it mm. so clearly. Mm. Uh, the script was actually written when uh, about the middle of Marco Polo when that was on television. So it gives you some idea of how long Doctor Who had been on the screen prior to that. But Morris had managed to get the character so spot on. It's only a sort of very few tweaks, I think, that they would have had to have made just to round the characters off to how they were actually being portrayed at the time. But you can really hear the characters of, of William Hartnell and Carol Ann Ford and all the others really coming through uh, in in that particular script, and it is an absolutely fascinating script to to read. Mm. And how have you found sitting in the control room and watching it being performed today? It's been thoroughly entertaining. Um, it's lovely to see how closely the the script for this particular big finish version is to Morris's original. It's very very faithful to to that original, um, which is is lovely to see because the original story is so strong. And it's lovely that this particular version isn't deviating away from that. It's lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's uh, now day four of our recording. It's uh, Thursday the 28th of January and uh, Farewell Great Macedon is now all finished. Um, we've done a little bit of um, the Fragile Yellow Arc of Fragrance, but uh, we've got a, bit, a little bit of time, so we thought we'd all come into the sound booths and have a chat. So with me I've got Caroline Ford, who plays Susan, uh, William Russell, who's playing Ian Chesterton again, and John Ainsworth, who's the director of the Fragile Yellow Arc of Fragrance. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, I, I just wanted to talk about um, Farewell Great Macedon first. Um from my point of view, listening to it out there, I just thought it sounded spectacular. I, oh. I absolutely love it. I just wondered how you felt coming in and doing it. Oh, it is a great script, isn't it? I mean, and, and Russ, with his wonderful Shakespearean tones, gives it such oh. quality. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's good. It's really good. Interesting. It's, I think it's got a much um, broader sort of appeal, perhaps, than the usual Doctor Who things that we do it's it's very very interesting historically it's fascinating i've learned so much <laughs> yes i think that's what uh, is attractive about it at first you so suddenly uh, uh, start oh oh really wow yes ah 
So you're learning things. <laughs> I should be able to <laughs> tell my no Which no doubt you should have learned years <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. Mm. I think one thing that I really loved was that I mean, often Doctor Who is about big invasions of things yes, attacking yeah. Earth yeah. and things. And yet in this, the big dramatic moments were actually about relatively small things compared to that sort of one man's life or mm. just something happening. And it, mm. it, there was huge amounts of tension coming out from just those... Very small dramatic Absolutely, scenes. Absolutely, yes. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. It follows history very, very accurately, I think. Mm. And uh, that, that's that's good. Yeah, that's apparently, a, the research yeah. that was done onto it was absolutely fantastic, and mm. it's all absolutely incredibly accurate. Having said that, I'm sure somebody out there will find some little thing that they're going to write about. <laughs> was it Nigel was in the other day, and I think he said that everything that happens in it actually happened according to the history books. Mm. Yes, that's what he said. Yes, he said yes, that, yes. It sounds quite like um, like Marco Polo was. It was, it was sort of, I think it's a similar kind of thing, and such a pity it wasn't actually filmed, mm. that we didn't actually do it, because it would have been, I think, of the same sort of expansive beauty that of Marco Polo, you know, mm. I mean, I'm sure. Because you've got everything there, you know, it's colourful, you've got the uh, amazing central character... And you've got the historical perspective as well. I mean, it was it's it's a really interesting. Perhaps they will now after this actually do it. Who knows? <laughs> it's, interesting, it's interesting you say that because Morris actually was watching Marco Polo when he was writing it. So he oh, took, interesting. Yeah, he took a flavour of what he was watching on screen oh, that's and all your characters. Really? Yes, that's yeah. why. Mm. That's curious. Yes. Yeah, yes. Interesting. And you can see that, that tone, can't mm, you? You can. They, the two yeah. do sit yeah. side by yeah. side yeah. really mm. nicely. Mm. But the, the historical stories that you did, um, you did some spectacular ones like the Aztecs and like Marco Polo. I just wondered what you liked about them, because I know, Carol, you were a big fan of them, weren't you? Yes, I much preferred the historical ones. I really, really liked them. Um, I think because, you know, they, they tell the stories of people rather than these sort of funny alien things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we're funny all very, we're all very interested in, in real people and the way they live their real lives. Yeah. And of course, give me a chance to dress up in lovely clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of the tatty stuff I wore the rest of the time. Well, what, would you, what would you be wearing for this one then, Carol? Would... Actually, I was just thinking that. They don't get me to change into this. Oh. Oh, really? No, but I always begged to have uh, a wardrobe at the back of TARDIS of stuff that I'd sort of used over the various places I visited that I'd taken favourite things out and occasionally plonked them on. So I had a marvellous conglomeration of things from all sorts of centuries, you know. So I'd hoped that maybe there might be some time where maybe I would pick up some beautiful dress. But (laughs) no. Maybe the the budget didn't run to that. (laughs) But it's a pity that all those wonderful things did disappear, didn't they? It's a huge pity, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd love to see them. Mm. For you, you, Russell, a lot of the historical ones, um, you were kind of fighting a lot, weren't you? You got to do the unarmed combat thing. What was that like? Well, I used to... Well, it was... was, uh, It was fun to do, but I was always very conscious that... uh, uh, the, the, each director would come up to you and whisper in your ear, you know, it's 3,000 quid every time we cut. So, <laughs> and, you think, uh, and you think, oh dear, <laughs> this isn't going to be much of a fight. And I'm always now disappointed when I see that, that's, that particular part of Doctor Who. I feel, you know, it was unfortunate, but it was apparently beyond our, 
our expenses. Don't you feel envious when you see the money chucked at the ones they have now? Well, of course, they they cut all the time, don't they? Mm -hmm. They cut all the time. I mean, every fight you do in a a big film or anything like that takes ages. And uh, they just do that. They well, cut, that's what cut, causes cut, the tension, cut, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But we didn't. We had no. to sort of struggle <laughs> on. And, uh, Could we talk a little bit about Wim Hortle and Jacqueline Hill and sort of your memories of them as people? I mean, mm. could, we, could we touch upon them? Well, Bill was a, a touchy-feely sort of actor, which was great for me because I'm a touchy-feely actor too. It's terribly difficult if you're that sort of actor and you're working with an actor who's not. But uh, Bill always had his arm around me and was patting me on the head. And you know, I found him delightful to work with. I really, really loved him. Uh, but he was very opinionated <laughs> about yeah. everything, not just the work, about for me anyway, I suppose because I was the youngest in the cast. And I think that somehow or other he associated the 15-year-old Susan granddaughter that I was playing with me in real life. And he was very (laughs) bossy about what I should be doing with my life. I mean, look, it was the 60s, for God's sake. And I would come in every week flashing my new outfit that I'd just bought, you know. And Bill got quite cross with me. He'd say, you, you mustn't do this. You mustn't spend all your money like this. You, know, you never know when you're going to be working again. <laughs> and I said, Bill, look, it's my money. I'm earning it. You know, if I want to spend it, it's up to me. So that was one little bone of contention. Yeah. The other thing is, I do love champagne. <laughs> and we used to go off to the BBC club after we finished. And um, I used to order some champagne and enjoy it tremendously and again he'd come up to me you shouldn't be drinking I mean how dare you person of your age drink I mean (laughs) you really were his granddaughter yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely and I really lost it one night with him God's sake, stop telling me what to do. You're not my grandfather. Go away. <laughs> and he's quite contrite. And he actually did bring a blooming great big, I think it was a Jeroboam of champagne into it. <laughs> oh. To say sorry. <laughs> oh, he was so sweet. Well, he was very nice. What I, what I liked about Bill was that he was always, uh, um, always really doing Doctor Who. And and uh, this is this was a, a thing that he would carry on right. with, and he would try it out on you, and he would do little funny gestures mm. and things like that. Mm. But he was a very inventive actor. Oh yeah, very yeah. extraordinary. Mm. He was a perfectionist, though, wasn't he? I yes, mean, he I was. Mean, he was never satisfied no, with what he did. With his or with other people, <laughs> or with other people. <laughs> yes, that's quite right. <laughs> and not sure, not slow to tell them. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's easy to forget, actually, that he was actually playing a character a lot older than he oh, yes. actually was. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes, he was. Yeah. He was only, what, 50-something yeah. when he died, wasn't he? Yeah. Was he really? Yes. Yeah. yeah, about 54 or something. My goodness. I know. Yeah. I know. It's, it's In fact, I, I remember, Carol, Ka- Ka- when we did um, uh, the, the, the Doctor Who and Bound stories with Jeffrey Belden playing oh, the Doctor, I remember yeah. you saying that Jeffrey Belden was actually now the actual age that, that he was supposed to be. Yeah. 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 That was quite interesting. Mm. What about Jacqueline Hill? Oh, Jackie. Jackie was wonderful. Yeah. Oh, she was really marvellous. I I was very fond of Jackie. I think that she was she was calm when everybody else was getting stressed. She was somebody you could always sort of look at and see that she was calm. Everything was all right. (laughs) And. there was a real, and I think she was a wonderful actress. Yeah. I think she was really good. 
Really and the other thing about Jackie is that um, she and, of course, you had been in many other series, television series, and she'd been in as a visiting artist so that, you know, there was an established group or clique, whatever, of the uh, resident people playing. And she said to me one day, you know, I can remember coming into um, a series and feeling very much, you know, sort of, on the outside, and I want to make sure that nobody ever feels like that oh. with us. Mm-hmm. So you know, we must be very welcoming to people coming in. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and so I, yes. think, we, I think we were. <laughs> oh, I think we were. Mm. Yes, definitely. And Russell, didn't you, when you both left Doctor Who, you and Jack, you yes. actually went into a play together, didn't we? We did. We did. Um, what was it? Uh, Terence Rattigan play. Uh, with two characters. Uh, yes, that's well, quite right. Yes. So presumably that wasn't just a coincidence that you. No, that was not a coincidence. <laughs> I had uh, uh, suggested it to Jackie, and we talked about it, and we thought, well, it would be interesting to do that, and we did. Didn't ask me to do a play with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's because you'd left before. (laughs) Left first. Yeah, Yeah, that was a great shock. (laughs) You've both um, worked with, for a big finish before, Russell's done a Companion Chronicle, and Carol, you've done the Companion Chronicles and full cast plays. Yeah. Um, But this is the first time since 1965, I think, or 64, that you've played the characters together, isn't yeah, it? Yes, yes, I it think is. it is. Mm, yes, that's yeah. true. I mean, we've we've met yeah. up at conventions and, yes, yes. and signings and things. You know. Yes, we have. But we've never actually worked together. No, that's true. And playing the same characters. I mean, that must have yeah. been played the same characters. Yeah. 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 I mean, when it, you both left, Doctor, you must have thought. That was it, you know. Yeah, you, I think never you always do, don't you? When you leave <laughs> something, you <laughs> move on to the yeah, next thing. Right, yes, yeah. that's right. Hopefully, <laughs> yes, hopefully. Actors <laughs> never think they're going to work again. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody will ever employ me again. <laughs> yeah. mm. And John, what's it been like for you to come in and direct this? Uh, well, we've only done a little bit so far, yeah. obviously, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's been lovely. I mean, um, uh, yeah, although I've met Russell before, we haven't actually worked together, so it's very nice to be able to to, to work with Russell and Carol and I have. Have worked before, so it's uh, it's lovely to do so again. So um, yeah, it's it's a, a, a pleasure and an honour. So what more can I say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we will make this very much in the flavour of how it was in the sixties, won't we? In terms of the post production, I think so. Definitely, use the, use use the right music, right theme tune, the uh, sort of uh, the spot effects in the same way. So perhaps a little bit more sparing than we we would on a uh, a production that's you know meant to be fitting in with the later Doctor Who. So yeah. I think that'd be good. Mm. Well, I think we should probably go back to finishing off Fragile Yellow off fragrance, although I could very happily sit in here talking all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it has been an absolute pleasure this week, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Lost Stories. The second Doctor box set. They advanced on him, slowly, deliberately. You saw what they did to that man? It it doesn't mean they'd do the same to us. If you think I'm going to stay around just to find out... Me neither. You're a man, aren't you? Defender of the faithful, the people and the state in the name of truth and justice. Men of the world unite. You've nothing to lose but your chains. Chairman Babs, where are you taking me? You may be a criminal. 
but you're still a woman. You seem to have emasculated every other man on this planet. But you won't bully us into submission. I just who do you think you are, you mealy mouthed old besom? The Daleks! The Destroyers! Is there anyone there? Show yourselves! Sarah Kingdom has climbed down into the valley. Have you got anything in your memory cells on Daleks? The Daleks are the dominant life form on the planet Skaro in the Eighth Galaxy. The Eighth? They're where? Their own territory. Attack and destroy! I wish you'd make some noise when you move around. I've had enough scares for one night. Seventy years ago, they slaughtered the garrison on Alpha Millennia. Six months after that, a Dalek ship was identified near Mars. Daleks are out and on the rampage. They're right here on M5, somewhere. Attack and destroy! Attack and destroy! Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.